I'll stay on the porch Blow the whistle Blow the whistle Blow the whistle Blow the whistle Where you get that from? Grab a mic, spit one Let me hit that blind Pimp C, 8 ball and MJG Keep spitting that P to the IMP Bun B, that's Texas, baby Ballin' G, that's Memphis, baby Short dog, that's Business and Buckets we are live, episode 131, sheesh, on this beautiful Thursday afternoon in the valley, the Phoenix Valley, the sun is shining, golly, it's beautiful before it gets that summertime miserably hot, hot, uh, I've been enjoying it, and uh, we have one hell of a show to talk about after the UFC card this past weekend in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, pretty solid loaded fight night card this weekend and some other action around MMA. Again, episode 131, Business and Buckets. I'm your host, Shane Gillette, and this is the last month of Business and Buckets, the podcast before Business and Buckets Podcast Network rebrands into two separate podcasts, one MMA, one business, keeping it separated, nicheifying a little bit, making it more simple for the viewers. But before we talk all this chaos in the MMA world, let's talk the one and only sponsor here at Business and Buckets, and that is Fueled Supplements. You know, it's a new year. Summertime is right around the corner. Unless you live out in the desert, it's always the summertime, it seems like. And that means less clothing and bathing suit days on the water. Summertime will be here before you know it, so get your summertime shine with Fueled Supplements, Advanced Thermogenic, and Feel Good Formula Showtime. Now, Showtime contains the only two clinically tested and patented ingredients scientifically proven to enhance thermogenesis. Besides fat burning, Showtime also increases energy, boosts mood, provides a sense of euphoria, suppresses appetite, enhances mental clarity, focus, and concentration. For, some, for, for optimal results, stack with counterattack. So go to fueledsupplements.com, use my promotion code BUCKETS for 15% off. And again, if you're supplementing the summer, you're trying to get that summertime fine, don't go to Amazon, don't go to GNC, type in fueledsupplements.com, support small business, that's the American dream, that's what it's all about, and uh, super excited um, about the, the rebrand uh, sponsorship and partnership with Fueled Supplements. So it is already May 11th, which is pretty wild, I just came back from Salt Lake City, one of my good friends from Montana, little small town reservation town I grew up in, um, is basically living his dreams, uh, doing freestyle motocross, doing air tricks at the Monster Jam shows, and I have not seen him perform since he's been doing this for two years now, so I wanted to go catch a show. Salt Lake City was the closest one here to Phoenix in the near future. I might catch some when I go back to Montana this summer as well. Got to meet his freestyle crew, really awesome people. Uh, another guy from small town, Montana in the, in the squad, a guy from twin falls, Idaho, and another, uh, a guy from Canada, small town kids, big dreams, really cool vibe. We had some, uh, rain come through the forecast. So a little bit of a rain out. So I actually got to watch the UFC card Saturday night at some bar that was showing it. I had bought it, but I needed to rewatch it. And I'm glad I did for the breakdowns, uh, especially in the main event, but you know, typical summertime, you got International Fight Week coming back up, 
Because of Leon Edwards, we're going to have a, a stacked London card again this summer. Um, supposedly, there's going to be a, a pay-per-view in Boston late summer. So lots of MMA and some good bouts announced this week. We got Emily Ducate and Lupi Godinez, May 20th. A battle of two young prospects that are uh, looking to be staples in the division. At the Big Dogs, Tom Aspinall's back against Marcin Tibera. A great matchup that'll also be July 22nd in London at the O2. Leron Murphy, Josh Kulabau also at the O2 card July 22nd. We have Ketlin Vieira stepping in against Penny Kianzad. That should be a good scrap. Also happened July 22nd. Um, you know, typically you get the UK guys uh, uh, in full force here. They added Nathaniel Wood versus Andre Feely. Uh, for the O2 card, which should be a ton of fun. Armin Sukarian is taking on Joaquim Silva, June 17th. And Demir Ismugulov is taking on Grant Dawson, July 1st, which should be a fucking badass bout. Ismugulov, a guy who's been top of the division, almost was medically forced to retire, still battling, taking on a very good young Grant KGD Dawson. Uh, Holly Holm subbing in for Misha Tate against Myra Buena Silva, July 15th. And then uh, Dana White and the UFC Brass announces that UFC 290 will be Robbie Lawler's retirement fight, and he will be inducted that night into the UFC Hall of Fame, which is well-deserved. Robbie Ruthless Lawler. Gotta love it. Uh, Mackenzie Dern and Angeline Hill are... Uh, Angela Hill are moved out of the card this week. It will be the main event for next weekend's card. Um, they were supposed to get a headliner with Raquel Pennington. Didn't happen. So insert McKenzie Dern, Angela Hill, a well-deserved main event. Uh, I'm assuming it's moved to five rounds as well. And that's most of the action in the UFC and the PFL. Um, some sketchy stuff going on. Four fighters from the PFL had failed their drug tests and will be undergoing suspensions. A lot of ex-UFC brass here. Tiago Santos, Christoph Jotko, and also Bruno Capaloza, who had a really good win on the last card. So it'll be interesting to see how they fill in their regular season and deal with the suspensions, how much uh, or how long the suspensions actually will be. And I'm interested to see what they pop for. Uh, but this past weekend, one championship, 10, the first United States-based card in Denver, Colorado. What a card it was. I was vibing with it uh, when I was able to watch probably six fights here. I started with the Sage Northcutt fight. Very intriguing. A guy that was so thought highly of back in the day. Uh, kind of fed to the dogs prematurely. Well, I got to see him get the win against Ahmed Mujtaba, who came out striking, sat Sage down quickly. Well, Sage gets the round one submission via hill hook. Um, and he was fired up. You could tell he just blacked out on adrenaline. Um, so interesting that although he got set down, he got the heel hook. Uh, we'll be interesting to continue to see his return back to MMA. And then in the Muay Thai bout, Rod Tang, the infamous Rod Tang in Denver, Colorado. That would have been great to see. Defeats Edgar Tabarez via round two knockout. And of course, the main event, the trilogy, the Mighty Mouse fucking big moment. Uh, potentially his retirement bout. He defeats Adrian Mar Adriano Marias via unanimous decision. Uh, pretty easy fight. Adriano was not able to get a lot of his 
attacks and combinations going as Mighty Mouse is in his face the entire five rounds. And uh, in the post-fight interview, they talked about retirement. He said he has to go talk to his family and, and, and uh, his wife and, and, and really understand. It'll probably take him some time to make that decision. I expect him back for another fight or two, honestly, but it's going to have to be the perfect setup. You know, he's already fought, fought Rod Tang in a, you know, a different rule set fight, one round MMA, one round Muay Thai. I'll be interested to see what kind of fights they could bring together to entice him to continue to fight. He's just too talented. I think he could have a couple more left, and I think he would be more than happy to table that discussion as long as it's worth his time. And then Bellator 296 in Paris. Friday morning, we got a pretty stacked card for Bellator standards. And to be honest, I've enjoyed what the PFL won championship, BKFC, um, even Jorge Masvidal has done over Bellator. Bellator just is continuing to have lackluster performances, even with their big names. But interesting opportunity this weekend on Friday during your workday. We have Douglas Lima versus Costello Van Stinas. You know, Douglas Lima has been a legend uh, in MMA, but also really uh, has shined in Bellator. We have Brent Primus taking on Mansoor Barnu. Uh, Gegard Mousasi versus Fabian Edwards is the main event. And Gegard Mousasi, probably one of the best Bellator talents um, of all time. So uh, we'll see how that shows out Friday morning. Obviously, D uh, Douglas Lima and Musasi starting to get aged up there a little bit. Uh, but we'll see what some of the big names could do and perform in Paris manana. And then there was a Jorge Masvidal BKFC card this past week. Um, the only fight that I tuned into was Roy Nelson defeating the undefeated Dylan Klecker. First round K out. Seeing big country back. Uh, you got to love it. Uh, for you Ultimate Fighter fans, which I am, and UFC fans, that was great to see. Enough of that nonsense, so let's talk UFC 288. I went 4-7 and seven for my picks. One of the worst uh, pay-per-view cards uh, for picks that I've had in quite some time. Uh, but we'll break it down. Some good fights that we did not break down last week. There was a round 2K, uh, round 2 knockout by Claudio Ribeiro. A round one knockout by Parker Porter. And Estevam versus Zumagalov was removed, um, I want to say the day of the card, due to, or no, I guess this would have been Friday. Estevam's weight cut issues, he didn't make weight, they scrapped the card on Friday. So, uh, brutal for the veteran, Zumagalov looking to get momentum in the UFC, has a fight booked, does everything, weighs in, and a day before the fight is called off, hopefully the UFC can get him back in the octagon quickly. And uh, a decent fight for the veteran in the flyweight division. But we're going to kick off in the early prelims. I started off 0 for 1 quite quickly as Ikram Alaskarov has a round one knockout over Phil Haas. But I don't feel terrible about it. It's the world of MMA. You're going out there, you're throwing smoke. You could catch smoke and it could put the lights out on any given night. Well, Phil came in, although it was only a couple minutes worth of action, and was dominating, man. He was pushing the pace, controlling the center of the octagon. He has spent time in different camps over the past couple of years. You know, he's had to recover from injuries as well. But you could tell Phil, this athletic freak with a crazy, uh, unstandardized striking style, had so much potential years ago. He is starting to grow into that potential. He's starting to prove it. He's had his up and downs. 
But a lot of what he has been practicing had been coming together at the first minutes of this round. But Ikram landed a clean, clean right hand down the middle. Perfect one-two. Shut the lights out of Phil Haas immediately. A huge moment for Ikram. Welcome to the UFC. That's a huge, huge win for him. Brutal loss for Phil at where he's at in this career. I mean, I love to talk about Phil Haas. You look at him, he just looks intimidating. He is a fucking animal. And again, the athleticism plus just the striking prowess that he has, he's, he's, he's a fan favorite. He has a little bit of wrestling. He doesn't use it very often uh, as he was a Juco champion. He, he just lost to Ikram, lost to Roman Delidzi in the first round as well, which, you know, he's had his last three losses were knockouts. He lost to Chris Curtis in the first round. You know, once your chin goes, it's definitely brutal. He cuts a lot of weight. He beat Darren Wynn, beat Kyle Dacus, beat Nasser Dean Amavov, beat Jacob Malkoon, uh, lost to Julian Marquez in the Dana White Contender Series. So he's fought good-level competition, has won against good-level competition, especially that uh, Amavov fight, Jacob Malkoon's tough fight, um, you know, ha- has been uh, susceptible to knockouts of lately, but he's still a fucking problem. Massive win by Ikram. Phil landed 17 total strikes, and all 17 were significant. Ikram landed 20 total and significant and had that one knockdown with the knockout. So Ikram extends his winning streak to six. He is 2-0 in the UFC, including the Contender Series bout. Phil extends his losing streak to two. He is only 2-3 and three since the beginning of 2021. Definitely a tough stretch for him. Uh, where do these guys go next? I mean, Ikram with a statement like that, I could see him getting somebody like Joe Pfeiffer, maybe Brad Tavares, some guys right outside or close to the top 15. And for Phil, I would love him to square up against Michael Oleksijuk. Uh, I think that would be a great matchup. Two brawlers. You know, got to watch out for those knockouts on both ends. Uh, either way, that will be a, a great performance for the fans. I, I would love to see those happen. Then moving into the prelims, we had Virna Jandaroba with the unanimous decision over Marina Rodriguez. And this was tough, too. Uh, this is where my parlay was busted. Um, clearly, if Virna was going to go for wrestling, it was going to be hard for Marina. I thought she was going to show improved takedown defense and uh, do a little bit better than what she did over the course of the three rounds. But honestly, you have to give the credit to Jandaroba, who is obviously focused on that. She had her legs locked down, very Khabib-ish. And really, Marina had nowhere to go. She was trying to land strikes from the bottom, from her back. And, and when she was standing with Virna, she had a ton of success, especially round three when she's down two rounds. She didn't get anything going. She was just getting, you know, held down, and Virna was holding top control. Um, Marina was throwing some smoke, like, hey, I got to get the knockout, make it happen. You're throwing hard. You're susceptible to another takedown. Virna strapped it up in round three, but... Uh, there was clearly a striking advantage by Rodriguez. I expected her to see that. I figured in the first two rounds she would have a good enough takedown defense where she would piece up Virna and it would be too, you know, she'd be too beat up and too tired to continually take her down. Obviously, I was wrong, but I'm not surprised with the game plan that Virna had. That's her only path to victory, and that's what you got to do to win at this level in the sport. Marina landed 115 total strikes, 33 of those were significant. Again, just a lot of kind of head slaps from bottom up against the cage, uh, trying to get points where she can. Virna landed 91 total, only 27 of those significant. 
And those are like body taps on top control. I mean, there wasn't a lot of like real legit problem strikes landed in this fight. Uh, and then she had three takedowns and seven attempts. So, you know, Rodriguez definitely defended some. But Virna, if she wanted to take down, was getting it. And she had a reversal as well. So Virna extends her winning streak to two. She moves up three spots in the rankings to number six. And Marina extends her losing streak to two. She moves down two spots to number seven. And honestly, this division is very interesting because where these ladies sit, I don't think Virna gets enough credit. And definitely by majority of the media, I would include myself in that bucket. You know, she's not the most fan favorite style of fighters by any means. She's tough. She's durable. Her grappling continues to improve. Uh, she has a gas tank like none other. Um, and then Marina, she's at number seven, debatably is just as good, if not better, than a, a lot of the women in the division. And obviously with Rose kind of holding things up, Jan's win, Carla sitting there at the top. You know, she just got married when she coming back. It's just kind of logjam, this division. But Virna definitely needs to get the credit where credit is due. Um, you know, you look at her resume and what she's done lately and over the course of the past few years, she's beaten very, very high-level high talent. When we look at her past few fights, I mean, she's fought everybody. Beat Rodriguez, beat Angela Hill, lost Amanda Rebos, unanimous decision. Uh, lost to Mackenzie Dern, unanimous decision. Beat Felice Herrig, lost to Carla Esparza, UD. Um, so she's fought a lot of high-level competition, beat some very high-level competition, but this is the best win of her career. And I accidentally just closed that. But at 34 years old, you know, another fight or two, she's right up in there. It'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, uh, she needs to be celebrated for her successes as well. So what is next? Well, I think Virna versus Amanda Lemos. I think that would make a ton of sense. It's another striker versus grappler. Can Amanda keep her down? Lemos definitely is going to have the power advantage in, in the Rodriguez fight. When Amanda took her on, it was Marina had the crisper, faster strikes, but Lemos just had the power advantage, landed the big shot, and was able to get the finish. So it'll be interesting to see if Amanda could keep Virna from taking her down because that's going to be the only path to victory you know, in my honest opinion. And then um, for Marina, why not give her a, a good fight to get back on track, a veteran affair where the veteran can move back up? Rodriguez versus Jessica Penne. I am not opposed to it. I think that'll be a great matchup uh, stylistically. And then if not, you know, I've brought this woman's name out there a few times because she's still in the rankings. But uh, Tisha Torres, you know, when she returns from the being a mother, Congrats on her and her baby and her return. That would be one hell of a fight, man. The striking between her and the, the tiny tornado. Uh, sign me up and uh, let, let's have some fun. So I started my day 0 for 2. Damn near started 0 for 3, but Chaos Williams got the split decision over L Rolando Bedoya. And if, if you guys are true UFC fans that likes to watch the early prelims, the prelims, you know, the fights I break down here, I'm picking fights specifically that I think is worth your time or fighters, like not all the time. Like, I don't know a lot about Rolando. He's making his UFC debut. I know more about chaos, but I think chaos is fan friendly enough to watch. You know, it's a, a good enough fight to tune into. And in this fight, I mean, these early fights really set the stage of how the judging is going to go. 
We're going to see close decisions. Are there bad decisions? Maybe point deductions, delay fights, any kind of situation that can happen. You're going to see where their vibes are and how uneasy you should be on fights that are close when it comes to judging, especially if you have money on the line or you're just a true fan of, of, of a certain fighter. Uh, but this is a very questionable decision. Um, I was not mad about it, uh, especially could have went three and eight on my picks, which is miserable. Um, but uh, uh, Chaos was able to do just enough to get the job done. He was faster, or not faster, he was stronger. Uh, he's the more durable guy. Rolando, great UFC debut. You know, he showed a lot of just gamer in him, the determination to dig deep. These guys, you know, really gave it everything they had. And, and he had his moments, took his advantages. And uh, I was impressed with him fighting a pretty good uh, level of opponent coming into the UFC. And statistically, this is interesting as well. Chaos landed 131 total strikes, 130 of those significant. You know, he throws big shots. And Rolando had 150 total strikes, 149 of those significant. So more significant, more volume. He was 0 for 2 in his own takedown attempts. But when we look at the bigger moments that got uh, Chaos the, the decision, um, he just had the bigger damaging moments, and the judges will take those to win the rounds. So, Chaos extends his winning streak to three. He is three and one since the beginning of 2022. He's been active, getting those wins stacked up. And Rolando, uh, obviously, starts a new losing streak and, and, and takes an L in his UFC debut. Where do these guys go next? I would love to see Chaos versus Jeremiah Wells. That would be a scrap, while Rolando could take on Trevin Giles. I think that'd be a, a good level of opponent for him as well. But I'm interested to see how both of these guys do in their next fights. Then we add the big, bigger, big men, the light heavyweights, Kennedy and Shekaku with a round two submission via guillotine choke over Devin Clark. Another fight that I got wrong. And it was interesting because Devin definitely should have a grappling advantage. He's, you know, went to the grappling well. He's improved his striking a lot. Where Kennedy... He's going to out-lengthen damn near anyone he steps foot in the octagon with. I, I can't remember the, the reach advantage. I think he had a six-inch reach advantage, a, a long leg reach advantage as well. And uh, he was the aggressor, which I thought Devin was going to bring the fight to Kennedy. He didn't. Kennedy was able to keep him at range, kind of pick him apart, was able to go up against the cage, grapple with him, uh, which is very impressive. And uh, who would have thought at the beginning of round two, I mean, the volume and pace around one was 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 savagery. Uh, I was really interested to see what was going to happen game two. I would have bet my bottom dollar that Devin would go for a quick takedown and try to um, you know tire Kennedy out even more. Well, it ends up against the cage, and he sneakily just locks in a guillotine that I think caught a lot of people off guard. But um, I think a, a couple of the big shots that Kennedy landed in round one definitely rang the bell of Devin, and I don't think he was 100% there, which led to that situation, because I highly doubt that, that you're easily going to get a guillotine up against a cage like that in, in most situations, especially with Devin Clark, a guy that's been there with some of the best names in the division. You know, light heavyweight's pretty shallow division, but some of the best names. Been to war, has got some good victories, so um, very impressive performance by Kennedy. I think this is the best uh, win for him to date. Kennedy landed 79 total strikes, 62 of those significant. He did have a submission attempt as well and was 0 for 1 in his own takedown attempts. 
while Devin landed 61 total, 36 of those significant, and he had one takedown and four attempts, so not very good day in the grappling office for Devin Clark. Again, major props to the man who deserves it in Kennedy and Shekaku. Um, I was very impressed. I want to pull them up real quick. Because who else is his, his good wins? He's 30 years old, contender series alum, beat Jan Kutalaba before this, beat Carl Robinson, lost to Nikolai Nigomaranu, lost to Daun Jung, has beaten Carlos Olberg in his early UFC days, lost to Paul Craig in his uh, UFC debut after the contender series. Three wins in a row. You know, he, he's flying high. Um, he didn't enter the rankings, but he's got to be damn close. And another quality win, he's, he's going to be right there. And then Devin Clark, I mean, tough loss. Kennedy's young. I, I think we're going to see a lot from Kennedy just with that length advantage. If he keeps working on his grappling and grappling defense especially, he's going to be a problem. But Devin, before this, Daun Jung, huge win, really opened my eyes. I always thought Devin was like a dog. He's there. He finds a way. But that was a high-quality opponent and a high-quality win. Lost to Azamat Mirzakhanov uh, before that. Beat William Knight. Lost to Jan Kutalaba. Lost to, lost to Anthony Smith. Beat Alonzo Menafield. Lost to Ryan Spann. Lost to Alexander Rakic. Lost to Jan Blakovic. Beat Jake Collier. I mean... Fuck, those, those are all the names, pretty much. Um, and he's, he'd gone from heavyweight to light heavyweight to try to find his stride. Um, I thought this would be another good win for him and a good moment to continue. But Kennedy still is the show, and uh, I was highly, highly impressed. I would love to see Dustin take on a, another level of competition at, at this. Maybe a Dustin Jacoby, a Jimmy Crute. Uh, he gets a win there, man. He, his business is, is fucking booming, as AB used to say. And for Devin, I think Nikolai Nigamaranu is the fight to make. Another guy coming off a loss has, has had his moments. That, that's going to be a must-win affair for those two guys. I mean, you can't really say a must-win, uh, maybe for Nikolai because he's a little bit younger. But Devin definitely just can't string those wins together. Uh, he, he's going to have to make something happen. But bravo, Kennedy, man. I was, I was massively impressed here. And then the prelim headliner. You knew this was going to be chaos. We have not seen Drew Dober collapse, let alone collapse in a firefight. Well, the steamroller Matt Frivola with the round one TKO over Drew Dober setting the pace for the team for the night. Give him that 50 G's performance of the night as well. And uh, this is just straight savagery for the first two minutes. And it was going to be who could take the more shots and, and who can outlast each other. And Drew was definitely missing on a lot of his bigger shots. I feel like in some of the recent firefights that Drew has had, the other fighters might be faster strikers like the Bobby Green fight, but when he loads up with his big right and left, they're, they're hitting home, and that's what's allowed him to move from it. Well, Matt was just kind of shoulder-shrugging right out of the way and, and landing good, quick counters. I feel like he did have a little bit snappier of strikes and uh, was able to get the finish, which I believe on, on the thing I heard that uh, Drew Dober's never been finished, I don't know if that's his pro fight or just the UFC. So he lost a submission, 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 decision, decision, decision. He lost to uh, a guy, Ramiro Hernandez, victory fighting championships in Council Bluffs, Iowa, in April of 2011. 
Huge shout out to Ramiro Hernandez. It's probably his highlight of his life right there. Uh, but the only person besides the steamroller to finish Drew Dober, not official nickname, but the nickname I'm rolling and Twitter is rolling with, the Crimson Chin. Ain't the Crimson in, in no mo. Uh, Drew landed 20 total and significant strikes compared to Matt's 39 total and 35. So you could see Matt was able to get more, more shots out of the pocket. He had the knockdown, was 0 for 1 in takedown attempts in this fight. Shit was nutty, man. Uh, Matt extends his winning streak to three. He enters the top 15. Big moment for Matt at number 14. And Drew has his three-fight winning streak come to an end. He starts a new losing streak and exits the top 15. These guys create an amazing atmosphere and fight every time they step in the octagon. I can't wait to see what's next. Uh, before Demir got announced yesterday... I thought Matt versus Demiris Mugulov would be a fun fight. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Let's see if I could wing a matchup here. Um, Moicano, I know, got hurt recently. That would be a ton of fun. Grant just got booked up. Does Dan Hooker have a fight right now? Do you imagine Dan Hooker and Matt Frivola? Hee! Let's see. Hooker, yeah, he's about to face Jalen Turner. So everyone ahead of him is pretty much booked out. Um, so he might have to let some things shake out and get a winner as well. But for Drew, I think Tiago Moises would be a banger, a well-rounded fighter, two guys that have been up and down. Um, either way, these guys are stepping foot in. We're tuning in. And then we have the main card. I am not shocked about this one. Thank God I got this fight right. If I would have got this wrong, I'd be like, I, I don't know anything. But Charles Jordan with a unanimous decision over Crone Gracie, a guy who has not stepped foot in the octagon since 2019, um, tried to get his jiu-jitsu going a little bit. Charles kind of just kept all of his limbs in, stayed on top. He never really tried to get up that as much as I thought he would. Kind of just didn't let Cron get any submission attempts going. And when it was striking, Charles was piecing him up. I mean, Charles has been in there with Shane Burgos and some dogs lately, and he's held his ground, stood in the pocket, has good footwork, comes at you with clean, I mean, clean straight shots, no no telltales what's coming, and, and Kron, he, he was just toughing this fight out, honestly. He looked to pull full guard um, while um, Charles was still standing. He tried to do a few things. It just wasn't happening. I still don't understand why they gave Kron this fight after all that time off and not a lot of high-quality wins in the UFC. Um, statistically, a lot of this is from the ground, but Crone landed 171 total strikes, but granted only 32 significant. So I could barely hit someone that's a strike, right? Um, not a lot of strikes landed there. While Jordan landed 175 total, but 80 of those were significant, Crone uh, got pieced up. So Charles starts a new winning streak. He is 2-2 two two since the beginning of 2022. Crone extends his losing streak to two and has not won since his UFC debut in February of 2019. I honestly don't know if Crone will ever step foot in the UFC octagon again by his choice. But if he does, the quality of opponent I could see is maybe Sungwoo Choi. That makes sense for me. And for Charles, I would love to see an amazing matchup with him and Jack Tank Shore make that ish happen, boy. And then we had the uh, short notice affair of the undefeated Movsar of Loev with a unanimous decision over Diego Lopes. Uh, this was a fight of the night. 
Well, I guess it's Lopez, even though it's ES. 50 Gs. And this is the bigger, biggest shocker of the night. I thought Movsar would come, get the takedown, get the submission, and be slight work. Well, Diego was game. Justin Bieber hair in my eyes, don't care. He had two submission attempts that would have damn near finished anybody any given night. That arm bar he had early in the fight, savagery. Avloev is just so smart in grappling. He knows to find the angles to last because a lot of these big submission attempts were late in the the the, the round, so he could just wait till the bell. And then I believe it was a ankle lock or knee bar that he had very deep as well. Avloev played calm, cool, collected. But as much as a unanimous decision this was, Diego man had the some of the biggest moments of the fight. Uh, but Movsar def- definitely landed the more bigger moments. And that got him the, the close unanimous decision. This is about as close as it can get. But what a show. People, if you don't know Diego Lopez, now you know. And I cannot wait to see what he does from here. I mean, the amount of people in all of MMA. Hey, you want to come to the UFC? Cool, you're fighting 10th ranked 17-0 Movsfar of Loev on short notice. And he came in there and fought with his back against the wall like he don't give no shits. And it was fucking amazing. That's the warrior spirit. Much well-deserved respect for Diego Lopez. Win, lose, or draw in his next few fights. You've, you've earned yourself a lot of fans, including myself. Now, statistically, Movsar landed 183 total strikes, 88 of those significant, and he had four takedowns and seven attempts. Good conversion right there. And Diego landed 48 total strikes, 37 of those significant. He had four submission attempts and a reversal. Now, Mozart stays undefeated. He's on a 17-fight winning streak. He is 7-0 in the UFC. Stays at number 10 in the rankings. Uh, you know, a, a random guy getting signed by the UFC does not grant you to move up. And Diego has his two-fight winning streak come to an end. He is 0-1 in the UFC. But boy, oh boy, probably built his stock as big as anybody since Chris Motinho, who got pieced up by Sean O'Malley in his UFC debut. Hopefully he lasts longer than Chris does, or Chris did. I really don't know where Movsar goes from here. I would love to see him take on Calvin Qatar. I think that is a must-see matchup. It makes too much sense. And for Diego, give him Pat Sabatini, a guy coming off a loss, high-level opponent, Dana White Contender Series alum. What a performance, Diego Lopez. Clap it up. Shit. Talk about performance. Jan Chignon with a round one TKO over the dangerous Jessica Andrade performance of the night, 50 Gs. Now, as much as I've been hyping up Andrade over the past few fights, you know, she's fighting a very young, up-and-coming Aaron Blanchfield, then fighting Jan, who we know has great combinations. I didn't know if she really had the knockout power against somebody like Andrade. Andrade has, has bounced up in a couple different weights, she says she feels at home at straw weight. She's, you know, fought in three different weight classes, but done really good in flyweight and straw weight. And really what she's done over her career, she doesn't have the best boxing IQ. She doesn't have the best footwork. She doesn't have clean, straight shots. She, she just fucking bullies women. She is like the Tasmanian devil. She'll come at you with flurry of hooks, and one of them's going to land, and she has way more power than you. She'll probably... You know, make you think like, oh shit, I don't want to be here right now. Or she's going to knock you out. Or she's just going to give you a presence that will be felt the rest of the fight. 
Then she mixes in her grappling. You know, she has good groundwork, but she just bullies women. Well, she has not been able to bully women anymore. Erin showed how much better she was than her on the ground. Jan showed, you can't come at me like a freaking wild child. I'm going to find an opening. And every time she does three hooks, she comes into close range with like three hooks, hoping one will catch. Jan sidestep, boom, sniped her right out. I thought this was an early, um, a, an early finish to the fight by the judge. I think he should have let Andrade continue. She wasn't ready to be done. She's been in a lot of wars. She's been rocked many a times before. So this is another thing, you know, with the the sketchy decisions, the sketchy uh, early calls and stoppage of the fight. I was like, oh boy, what's this la leading up to the, these last few fights? Um. But beautiful performance by Jan. She's calculated. You could tell she was really trying to up her game uh, the past couple of years after some tough losses, uh, training with Uriah Faber and crew. Well, um, I, I would say her stock's at an all-time high. Dana White in the UFC press conference after this um, post-event conference talked about wanting to have her and uh, Wei Lei fight for the title in China. The two Chinese badass women fighting for the title in their, in their home uh, country. That would be savage. And for Andrade, she's going to have to really focus on her technique if she wants to fight at a high level uh, that she has through most of her career and fight for another title because, you know, the chaos of just bullying people around, ain't, ain't, it's not going to happen no more. You know, the age of those women, the Ronda Rouseys, the one-trick ponies, women have leveled up such a crazy level. You look at the Aaron Blanchfields, you look at the striking ability, you look at the quality coming from Invicta, the, the, the sport is evolving, especially on the women's side, and that's not cutting it anymore. Jan Chignon, fucking brilliant display of martial arts. Um, Jessica only landed 12 total and significant strikes compared to Jan's 26 total and insignif significant with her one knockdown in, uh, during the knockout. Jan extends her winning streak to two, and she moves up three spots in the rankings to number three. Jessica extends her losing streak to two, one at straw weight, one at flyweight, and she moves down in the straw weight rankings to number five. With the unknown of what's happening in straw weight, especially with Nami Yunus, someone even recently asked Dana if there was an update. He said no. Um, I think we're definitely going to get Yan and, and, and Zhang Wei Li for the belt. The question is, does it actually happen in China? That'll be tough, I think, in the time frame, unless both women are chilling because uh, it might not happen till the very end of the year, early next year. And for Jessica, I think she needs to spend some time with her camp and, and develop her striking. I know she has her own gym now. Maybe she needs to, you know, broaden her horizons there. But she's not going to be able to just be bully the women, especially in the strawweight division anymore. When she does come back, I would assume she stays at strawweight because she's just hyping up how that's her division. And why not put her up against Tatiana Suarez, who's going to have her first fight back at strawweight, coming back after the time off. Stylistically, that would be fantastic and gives both women a chance to be right where they want to be. So um, really going to be interesting to see how this strawweight women's division shakes out. But what a performance by Jan, man. Couldn't, couldn't give her enough praise. Then we had the, uh, the, the kind of clunker of a co-main event. We had a clunker in the fact that I wanted to see five rounds of savagery, but it was a Bilal... Remember the name Muhammad show with a unanimous decision over Gilbert Burns, and I got it wrong, but I'm glad I bought the pay-per-view and got to understand what the hell happened.
because I was at a bar where there was audio, but you can't hear it over all the crazy drunk people. And I, I knew something was wrong with Burns because he was not throwing with the, with the aggressiveness, the game planning, and the volume that he normally does. After round one, he was just like kind of sitting there and just taking it. Those big high kicks from, from Bilal. I mean, Bilal really doesn't throw a lot of non-powerful strikes. And uh, I was just like, what is Gilbert doing? I, I really don't understand what's happening here. You know, he had a couple half-assed takedown attempts. But it wasn't the real takedown attempts that we see Gilbert go for. When I talk about takedowns in MMA, you have the striker that kind of reaches for a leg, and if he can't grab it, he backs off, continues striking. That's a bullshit takedown. When you have a real grappler, a jiu-jitsu artist, or a wrestling background, these guys are coming for a blast double. If you don't get it, then they're switching to a right single, try to ride the pipe. If not, you're already then backed up against the cage. They switch back to a double, have you against the cage, trying to get those hands locked, lift your ass up and get you down. It's a string of attempts, and we didn't see that from Gilbert. And Bilal has some of the best takedown defense in the UFC, so you have to give him credit there. But it just wasn't the normal Gilbert and Dorino that we know. Either way, what Bilal Muhammad has done lately, and it's funny because going to Salt Lake City to see my friend's uh, freestyle motocross event, it's a 10-hour drive, so I was in the car a lot. I was catching up on some Joe Rogan MMA episodes and listening to the Bilal one because I haven't heard it. And, you know, this guy is just the blue-collar worker, comes in, he doesn't drink, he doesn't party, he perfects his craft every fucking day, and he gets no love whatsoever. You know, he's not the biggest marketing icon in the sport by any means, but the work and the deservedness of where he is outmatches anybody. And it was cool to hear that podcast before the weekend's fight, see this performance. Uh, much like, you know, I was talking, Virna needs her flowers. Bilal needs his flowers because he's never gotten a title shot. He's never been able to skip up in the rankings. He had a fight. He's had to fight Wonder Boy. He's had to fight all these dangerous guys on his way up to a title fight. And with this win, should get the winner of Leon and Colby. The problem is going to be is, does that actually happen? Is that happening anytime soon? Does Bilal want to sit back for a year and a half until he can fight Leon? Maybe two years. I mean, with Colby's court situation, I don't think there's going to be clarity anywhere anytime soon. Um, they were even talking about that on the JRE episode as Colby's claiming brand da brain damage. How can you take a fight when you're claiming brain damage? So there's a lot of drama here. Bilal's path has never been straight up and down. It's never been clear. But what an amazing performance. And the striking Bilal has grown, honestly, has leveled up so far since when I was talking shit on him in the Leon Edwards fight where I think he was going to lose. You know, he obviously prefers the deeper in the fights because he has the cardio. He has the wrestling ability. He could wear and tear on his, his opponents. And it looks like five-round fights will be in, in his future, at least for the next fight, if all goes well. But you got to give props to what he did. You know, messed up injuries by Gilbert or not, it was an amazing performance. And uh, it really opened my eyes. I thought his last fight opened my eyes. But again, I always say there's levels. I thought Gilbert was here. Bilal's here. What he did, you know, he I, I would have loved to see him versus a healthy Gilbert. Let's just put it at that. I think it would have looked more like the Kamzat fight than what we said here. But uh, I want to pull this up because this was announced earlier today. The list of injuries Gilbert had from the UFC 288 fight. And looking at social media and looking at um, Gilbert and his team's response, I think I know the moment they say that it happened in the first round when he went for that takedown. 
When you're a grappler and you're going for takedowns, this is th- the third fight of the year for Gilbert Burns. He wanted an t- attempt at the title shot against Leon Edwards so bad because he probably thinks he could beat Leon and get the title, and he wasn't able to with Usman, that he has fought three times by the half-year point, by the fifth month, against savages. And when you're in camp and you're, you're, you're going and you're grappling, you're having all that weight, you know, going down and they're, they're sprawling on you. Like, grappler's shoulders get fucked up. So I'm not surprised. I think I know the exact moment in the first round because he wasn't the same since, and they were saying it happened early in the fight. But he tore his left AC joint, a second to third grade tear, a torn left deltoid, a torn left trapezius muscle, a sprained neck, and a C4 and C5. So he's fucked up. I'm sure that was fucked up round one, and he was taking those high kicks, right? I think it was his left so because he was only throwing rights. You know, that, that shit's just getting beat on and fucked up through four rounds. The heart of the warrior, he never gave up. He still made, you know, he was there. He wasn't the typical Durinho, but he was still there battling, trying to find a way. It's got to be frustrating. Um, I just hate the way that that sh- shaked out. And to give Bilal even more credit, there was the drama of his ankle being blown up, uh, going viral on social media after weigh-ins. He's kind of... You could tell limping, crip walking around through weigh-ins and the press conferences. And uh, he said that he had hurt his ankle that week. Nothing was going to happen. I couldn't tell during the fight. That was the first four minutes I was just staring at his ankle. I couldn't really tell if it was messed up. It looked uglier on the photos. And you couldn't tell because he was putting his weight on and he's launching kicks. You know, supposedly he had a hurt ankle, but even more credit to him. So as much as I want to say I wish... We just got to give the flowers to, to, to Bilal Muhammad because he deserves it. And, dude, he is such a well-rounded fucking fighter. He's going to be a problem to beat. Uh, the top of this division is, is really, really fucking talented. So, breaking down the stats, Gilbert landed 81 total in significant strikes. He was 0 for 4 in takedown attempts. Bilal didn't even try a takedown, which was interesting, but when you're having that much success on the feet, I get it. He landed 132 total and significant strikes. He won all rounds. Uh, Bilal extends his winning streak to five. He is 14-3-1 in the UFC. I mean, geez, Louise, man. He moves up one spot in the rankings to number three. And Gilbert has his two-fight winning streak this year come to an end. He starts a new losing streak and stays at number five. But if I'm willing to battle with someone, these are the guys I'm having in my corner. They will, you know, they love this sport. They put so much sweat and tears on the line and, and you know, dedication and time from their families that the Gilbert was willing to do three fights, would have been four fights probably this year to fight Leon Edwards because he feels that confident or Colby Covington to get the title. And Bilal would have done whatever it's taken because he's been on a hunt for a long time. Now, Bilal extends his winning streak to five. He is 14-3-1 in the UFC. Oh, yeah, I already talked about this. So what's next? Well, um, for Bilal, I think he should get the winner of Leon and Colby. We've talked about that. But there's a lot of drama of when it's going to happen. If that doesn't happen, you know, things get delayed for quite some time. I could see the UFC pushing Bilal versus Kamaru Usman. I mean, why not? Title eliminator. Uh, It's really the only fight that makes sense outside of Bilal for the title. And for Gilbert, you know... Obviously, he's going to be having shoulder surgery. I'd be shocked if he fought again this year. I would like to see him at some point take on Shavkat Rachmanov. I mean, come on. Why not, right? 
Uh, he's already fought uh, Kamaru, so that's that's the the test the stress test for Shavkat uh, if he does fight again this year. But I doubt that's going to happen. Either way, both men, fucking bravo! You got to give all the all the love and appreciation to these men. And then the main event, the bantamweight showdown, Aljamain Starling with a split decision victory over Henry Cejudo. And I tweeted that I'm like, wow, this is a shocker. I can't believe that that's what they came up with. I have had quite a few uh, gin and tonics by this point, right? I I had gotten there in the prelims uh, because the freestyle supercross got rained out. Would have kicked it with my friends, but they were uh, hightailing home back to Montana. I go find a bar that's showing the fights. And uh, again, the audio, you could barely hear anything throughout the whole fight. So I didn't even know about the shoulder watching it back at home. You could, you know, they're talking about the shoulder right away, but I couldn't hear the telecast, the play by play. I thought that I believe I was like, okay, Aljo and Henry round one, super fucking close round two. I think I gave it to Aljo round three or four. I think three Aljo four Henry and five Henry. And they're very close, right? Very, very close fights are very, very close rounds. Um, at the bar, I just I thought it was clearly Henry Cejudo. I, I thought he had the bigger moments. That one knee he landed, I thought that was the most impactful shot of the fight. And I thought the rounds were close enough that he had won via striking plus the takedowns. But watching it back, I thought it was pretty easily uh, Aljo, potentially even 4-1 Aljo. But again... I knew it was sketchy vibes throughout the night with the early call, the the sketchy decisions earlier. And you look at the scorecards and one of the judges gave round five to Aljo. So point being, it was going to be a sketchy situation if it went to the judge's decisions. It did. But laying a little bit of the background here, I mean, Aljo, again, a guy that deserves fucking flowers, doesn't get enough of them, right? Um, I, I was big on Aljo against Pewter Jan. I thought... Peter Jan was a little bit overrated. Everyone was oohing on about his uh, striking, especially after what Aljo did to Corey Sanhagen. I'm like, man, this guy's a fucking problem. But we have to, at this point, consider him on the stretch he's been one of the best bantamweights, if not the best bantamweight champion of all time. That's the kind of flowers that he deserves, and nobody's saying it enough. Meanwhile, Henry Cejudo, after the time off, questionable game planning from a guy that's been talking about how good his game planning is, how much tape he watches, uh, helping John Jones and all these, you know, Zhang Wei Lei with the high chin stance. I just don't think it was the right move here. Um, you know, he gave props to Al Jose as well-deserved. But, dude, the heart of Henry to come back after this time off, the shape he was in, the quality he he had, I mean, I don't know if they run it back that Al Joe loses, but Henry Cejudo is only going to get sharper, you would assume, consistently fighting or planning to fight as long as he doesn't retire. Um, but... Clearly, you know, Henry got an early takedown, body lock takedown, showed his wrestling prowess. Aljo had his moments, still got the takedowns. Henry is just so much smaller than Aljo, and um, it'll be interesting to see how him and Sean O'Malley uh, match up in the future, having a little bit more size advantage. Striker versus grappler, not as well-rounded as Henry Cejudo and Aljo. Uh, So there's just a lot of interesting storylines in this fight coming out of this fight. But for me, I want to spend some time giving props to Aljamain Sterling because on his run up to the championship title bouts, 
He'd done very impressive things, but nobody really talked about him. He, I'll admit, as a true UFC fan, the press with these guys was fucking just cringy as hell, not just by Henry. Um, hearing the fans on the watchback booing Aljo in Jersey and rooting for Henry Cejudo just kind of... Aljo just doesn't get a lot of love. He does his own YouTube. He seems like a good guy. He's fucking Jamaican. Good vibes. He's probably a great friend, great fucking teammate. Will do anything and everything for his team. You can look at him and Marab's relationship. But on his run to the title, man, I mean, it's very impressive. He lost a Rafael Asuncao in 2017. Split decision. A very good Asuncao at the time. Beat an amazing Renan Burrell. Lost to Marian, Marlon Marias on the knee knockout. And just went savagery, man. Beat Cody Stamen. Beat Jimmy Rivera. Beat Pedro Munoz. When these guys were the best that they were, honestly. Um, the quick submission, rear naked choke by Corey Sanhagen. Mind-boggling. To beat Puterion twice. The first fight, I don't think he would have won. He, he gassed out, but he learned a very big lesson in a five-round affair there. Which set him up to be where he is today. In the second Puterion fight, he, he put work in and got it done. Um, you know, people still wanted to blame the first fight, but he, he beat Pewter that night and I think he deserved it. I was giving him flowers, but I still picked TJ Dillashaw in his title defense. Uh, TJ's shoulder got fucked up. I'm really very honestly interested to see how that would have played out, but he still did his thing against a very good opponent and then did this against triple C. That's like, yep, he belongs. And, and you look at those names. I don't know a lot of guys in the bantamweight division that are going to have names like that. Uh, one of my favorite fighters in the bantamweight division is Dominic Cruz. And until the Cody Garbrandt stuff was, uh, you know, dominant. But when we look at Dominic Cruz after the WEC merger, he beat Uriah Faber. That's not even close to the names that I just said for Aljo, in my opinion. Then he beat Demetrius Johnson. That's, that's the big one. You beat Demetrius Johnson, you're going to have that for a long time. He beat Takaya Muzagaki means nothing to me beat tj dillashaw that's huge beat uriah faber again i mean decent the first one was better then it you know loses to henry and cody comes back beats casey kenny pedro uh, munoz and loses to dominic cruz i mean in my opinion you look at aljamain just for the fact of being unbiased here you got to give him credit and i think his resume speaks for itself uh, as the as the greatest bantamweight of all time he's in his prime at 33 years old I don't think he has a choice with the Sean O'Malley fight. Um, I think he was told he was going to fight Sean O'Malley a long time ago. Him and Henry said they, they were told the winner gets Sean because Sean sells tickets. He's the, the golden standard for the UFC right now. And I think that, you know, Dana come out and said August in Boston is where the fight's going to happen, which crushes me because I'm a few hours from Vegas. I'd love just to go watch the title fight. Uh, I would have got 100-level seats with a couple friends. But I'm going to be coming back from Montana around that time. Boston's probably not realistic. So I hope for Aljo's sake, he gets a little bit more time to celebrate. You know, he couldn't even celebrate the fucking win because they brought Sean in the octagon right away. Joe barely could say, you know, even Joe was like, I want to give you more respect. But they were already selling the next fight, which I know Aljo's selling. Like, he's not being his true self in there, talking all this shit, doing this thing. You know, he even said, guys, at the end of the fight, you know, this is Jersey. I can only be my myself. And, and sometimes fighters don't need that marketability. You know, they don't need to be on social media. I get it. I'm 30 years old as well. I came like pre some of that social media shit. It drives me nuts. I'm doing my podcast. You don't see me everywhere doing it. I plan on doing that with the rebend. I'm biting the bullet and making it happen because I want to make the podcast happen to a better level. But 
for Aljo, he didn't even get in to enjoy the moment. Now they're going to say, hey, August. So for a five-round fight camp, that's 30 days of hard training if you're doing it right. So August 19th, that's put you at September. It's May. You got May, June, July. Or no, uh, I went back <laughs> forward. So not September, but July 19th. So he's got May, June. He's got two months where he really can't get out of shape because he balloons up so much. And then it's straight into fight camp. I mean, legit fight camp. Like, he's got to be grappling right now. He should have been at practice today if he's not doing all the striking, doing everything. So, you know, uh, sometimes it's brutal after all the shit these guys go through. Debatably one of the best uh, resumes and and the the brass don't give a fuck, right? They don't give a fuck. It's like corporate America. As much as, you know, I love Dana White. I love the promotion. They don't give a fuck. One thing happens, you're out of there. And I, I can't wait to be able to tell some of these fighter stories because it's like, man... Think about the shots he's taken, the sweat, the tears, the emotions, the being broke, the everything they've had to go through. And he's finally at the peak and he can't even enjoy it. He wants to go to Jamaica and do these things. He doesn't even have time. They're going to force him right in there to Sean O'Malley. You know, who knows what's going to happen. We'll save that for a later date. But if he does lose, then it's all gone from you almost. And then even if he wins, he wants to move into featherweight. I, I honestly will be interested to see if... Dana even gives him a straight shot at Volkanovski or makes him prove himself. You know, they gave Cejudo the bantamweight title. I mean, there's just so much drama within this, but uh, it's tough for the fighters, and we got to enjoy and and spread flowers over Aljamain Sterling because he deserves it. He honestly does. I mean, he, he doesn't have, you know, what they would teach you in boxing clinic of the perfect striking, but he finds a way. He's himself in there. It's hard to, to determine where he's coming from. He's smart with the grappling. You know, Henry was trying to yank on his neck. He had na- neck surgery. He was staying on his knees because you can't knee while, while an opponent's down. I mean, there's just a lot of clever things that he was doing. And uh, my biggest takeaway is I can't believe how wrong I was thinking that Henry won. I was wanting Henry to win because I picked him and had a shot on the line for, <laughs> with some guy at the bar. So that might have been, you know, my mind was telling myself that he was winning. And plus, I was pretty tuned up. Watching it back... Yeah, I was way wrong. Aljo probably won that 4-1, honestly. I could see the debate for 3-2. I think it was round three that was very close. Um, but we need to, you know, this guy needs to be celebrated with the, the big names because he deserves it. Um, let's see. Yeah, I mean, quickly, round one, very, very close back and forth affair. Both fighters got takedowns, but I ended up giving round one to Aljo due to striking advantage. Round two, very close fight. I gave it to Aljo for having bigger shots landed. All right, that's one that you could have gave to Henry. Round three, another close round, but I give it to Aljo as well. And then round four, I thought uh, real time Cejudo won that. But with the takedown that Aljo got late in that round, I think he won that round. Henry for sure round uh, one round five. If I was judging this from the telecast the second time, I would have judged it rounds one through four, Aljo, round five, Cejudo. But real time, I think I had round one and three, one, three, and five to Henry. So what I saw that Henry had a video of like, oh, I should have won that round. He's full of himself. Aljamain won that fight, and there should be no debate. Statistically, Aljo landed 186 total strikes, 135 of those significant. He was four for 15 in his takedown attempts. Henry landed 143 total. 99 significant, so quite a lot less in the striking department. 
and only had three takedowns on eight attempts, better conversion rate, but less uh, on the amounts. And I don't really believe Aljo had four. I'd have to like literally look that back. But uh, sometimes the judges scoring takedowns are iffy. And again, they're cage side. You know, you're cage side. You have the big cage, the poles and everything in your way. It's a terrible place to judge a fight. But, you know, there's, there's tough things on their side as well. Either way, Aljamain, the motherfucking funk master Sterling, extends his winning streak to nine. Three successful title defenses in the deepest fucking division in UFC and has been for a long time. He's 15 and three in the UFC. And Henry has his six-fight winning streak come to an end and starts a new uh, losing streak but enters the rankings at number three. You know, uh, Henry said that he wasn't sure if he was going to fight. It seems like after a couple nights off, he wants to fight. He called out Marab Dwalashwili, which honestly, that that's probably even better fight. Uh, Marab and Henry, the, the wrestling and, and striking combinations they'll have would, would be very intriguing. So I hope that happens. I hope he doesn't retire. And clearly, it's Aljo versus Sean. Uh, the big boss wants to lock it in for August in Boston. We'll see if that happens. Um, I, I think it's a shame that uh, Henry or Aljo should have to do that. But rightfully so, the Sugar Show is deserving of the title. And, you know, he's already been sitting on the shelf uh, for quite some time. So he, he deserves to uh, get a shot. You know, that'll be one year since his last fight. So that's just kind of the business sometimes. It's the business. Either way, though, Aljamain Sterling, fucking Bilal Muhammad, Jan Shinyon, fucking putting on shows out there, and they need their flowers, too. And Virna Jandaroba. And I had a bad taste in my mouth after the fight. I thought, ugh, you know, the card, that was bad. What's wrong with Gilbert? I didn't think the Andrade fight would be one round. I thought we'd see three rounds of chaos. The Avloa fight way overperformed. The Charles Jordan was meh. I expected that. The Dober fight only one round would have been nice to see more. And um, I, I really thought we would have saw more out of Phil Haas and Marina Rodriguez. But either way, solid card. I want to say the you know one of the better cards of the year, but solid card. And we have a solid fight night card this weekend. We get UFC fight night in Charlotte. Early Saturday, main card at 12 p.m. Pacific on ABC. This local television even in the midst of NHL and NBA playoffs. The prelims at 8.30 p. Uh, Pacific Standard Time on ESPN. A good fight that we will not be breaking down. We have Nathan Levy versus Pete Rodriguez that got rescheduled from a couple weeks ago. And we're jumping early in the prelims. We got Jessica Rose, Jesse Jess Clark, 35-year-old fighter with an 11-8 and record taking on Tainara, the Thai Panther Lisboa, 32 years old with a 5-2 and record. And honestly, this is an interesting matchup, especially with Jesse Jess looking to get back on the winning track. Uh, Tainara is looking to make a name for herself in her UFC debut. We had a couple of those last week, see how they turned out. Um, Jessica has a BJJ background with a purple belt. She trains at a syndicate MMA. She is an Invicta and Titan FC alum. She's on a two-fight losing streak and hasn't won since October of 2021. And Tainara is on a three-fight winning streak. She's a jungle fight alum. Three of her five fights are via knockout. But honestly, Jess coming off back-to-back submission losses, which is brutal. I expect this fight to be on the feet more, more striking opportunities for her in this fight. I do expect Jessica to bring the grappling and try to get her own takedowns. This is a close fight, very important fight for, for Jesse Jess. I'm taking uh, Jessica Rose 
I'm putting her on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Moving on. We got Brian Pooh Bear Battle, 28 years old with a 9-2 record, taking on Gabriel the Gifted Green, 30 years old with an 11-4 record. And this fight should be a very high-paced back-and-forth affair, man. Striking battle, kickboxing, both men young in their careers, not even quite in their primes, but not wanting to suffer a loss and have to start at the very bottom of the division. So there is a ton on the line for them. Brian battles. Uh, Brian trains out of Charlotte, which is interesting. So he'll be in his host city. He's on a one-fight losing streak. He is 3-1 and one in the UFC. He is uh, the ultimate fighter champion. And four of his eight wins are via submission. He does have a four-inch reach advantage and a two-and-a-half-inch leg reach advantage. Now, Gabriel is a purple belt in BJJ. He's a Bellator alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak and was 1-1 one and one in 2022. Six of his 11 wins are via submission, and two of his four losses are via knockout. I honestly expect this fight to go a little bit of everywhere. I think Pooh Bear's length is definitely going to pay dividends for him. He will look to wear on Gabriel against the cage, then pick him apart from distance. This is a very close fight. I'm taking Brian, but I am not putting him on a parlay. I don't have that confidence. Then we get Carlos, the Black Jag Olberg, 32-year-old fighter with an 8-1 record, taking on Ehor, the duelist Potera, the 26-year-old fighter with a 20-3 record. And this is another high-quality fight. I mean, I would be shocked if this went the distance, as both men like to take their chances and have some serious knock-the-lights-out power. Now, Carlos trains out of city kickboxing. He was the King of the Ring champion in 17 and 19 for kickboxing. He's a Contender Series alum, and he's on a three-fight winning streak. Five of his seven wins are via knockout. Now, Ihor is on a one-fight winning streak. He is 2-1 in the UFC. He's a Contender Series alum. Nine of his 19 wins are via knockout. Six via submission. So 15 of his 19 wins are via finish, which is very impressive. And two of his three losses are via knockout. Honestly, Carlos has continued to level up in his time in the UFC. He isn't quite as experienced as Potera, but he's in his prime. He trains with a bunch of killers at City Kickboxing. I expect his power to come through in the clutch. Ihor moves around well. He's sly in the pocket. If he could get Carlos down, it's a whole other ball game. But I'm not betting on that. I'm taking Carlos Ulberg, Justin Pickham's. Don't have that level of confidence for a, for a parlay situation. These are just great stylistic matchups. I mean, here we get Cody the Spartan Stamen, 33 years old with a 21-5-1 record, taking on Douglas Silva de Andrade, 37 years old with a 28-5 record. It's really going to set the stage, some of these early fights, even the Jess-Jess fight. Does she go to grappling or look to strike? Brian, does he try to get the takedown, look to strike? Does Potera look to get the takedown to strike? If they're all striking, getting knocked out, so they're going to want, everyone's going to be feeding for 50 Gs. It can set the stage up where this Stamen uh, Andrade fight, man, is going to be wild. Uh, there's just so much on the line for these guys. Stamen in his prime, 33. 
Definitely had a tough couple of years trying to get back on track. Um, you know, Douglas is 37 years old. At this point, he's probably fighting for Performance of the Night awards anyways. And a loss here by either men really puts them deep in the bantamweight division, which being in the deepest division and having to scale up, that's a, it's a job in itself, especially at 37 and 33. Now, Cody trains out of Extreme Couture. He has a D2 wrestling background at a Grand Valley State University. He's a blue belt in BJJ. He's on a two-fight winning streak and is 2-2 two and two since the beginning of 2021. Seven of his 21 wins are via knockout. Now, Douglas has a boxing and BJJ background. Two of his last three fights have been fight of the night or performance of the night. He's on a one-fight losing streak and is 2-2 two and two since the beginning of 2021. 20 of his 28 wins are via knockout. Very impressive for a smaller fighter. He's a jungle fight alum, and he does have a four-inch reach advantage and a two-and-a-half-inch leg reach advantage, which I'm sure Cody Stamen's accustomed to having the, the shorter length. Um, but honestly, Douglas could finish anyone, man. A lot of his knockouts, though, were earlier in his career uh, before the UFC in Brazil. I honestly think Douglas has a size advantage, not only just length, but is a little bit bigger of a, of a frame. But Cody has good boxing. He's in his prime. I've seen him level up. When you're at this age and, and you're, you know, you're not going anywhere out of fighting anytime soon to make money, you got to level up. And I think I've seen that from Cody in his last couple uh, bouts. I expect him to find a way to close the distance and unleash combos over and over. Douglas has definitely been known to tire himself out with some big shots. So if he could play good defense, shrug some off, uh, keep his uh, um, footwork going, his head movement going. I also think he, he needs to mix in some kicks, not just be a boxer, maybe even some grappling, which he's good at, but doesn't really, you know, go for in the, in, in these fights. Um, so I am taking Cody Stamen, but I'm not putting him in a parlay. Great fight though. Speaking of great fights, we got Carl Williams, the 33-year-old fighter with an 8-1 record, taking on Chase the Vanilla Gorilla Sherman, 33 years old with a 16-11 and 11 record. And really, this is just another do-or-die fight. It should be a clang-and-bang affair. Um, Carl really isn't in a do-or-die, I guess. He's making his UFC debut. Um, you know, at 33 years old, though, it's uh, he doesn't have a ton of time, so there still is a ton on the line for him, his career could go in a lot different ways with the win and loss. And for Chase, you take a loss here. Honestly, your, your UFC days are probably over. Um, Carl trains out of American Top Team, which we'll talk about some of that in a second. And he is a Dana White Contender Series alum. Chase is an orthodox fighter. He trains out of Killcliffe FC. He has a purple belt in kickboxing and a blue belt in BJJ. He's a BKFC Island Fight and Titan FC alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak. He is 1-5 in, in his last six fights and 2-5 and five since being cut. I've talked about this before. It's been against a lot of high-quality opponents. He's had his moments. Um, and 15 of his 16 wins are via knockout. For as much as Chase has done and the skid that he's in, he's only 33. You know, he's relatively young. He's in his prime. He's been in a lot of wars. He has a lot of ring time. He's durable. He has solid striking. He has a good fight IQ with all of his situations as long as it's on the feet. The problem is, is I think Carl, sadly, for, for fans, a lot of fans that don't want to watch this, I don't care, but 
I think Carl's going to try and take Chase down quickly. That's the easiest path to victory. You can't sit there and box with them. Anything can happen at heavyweight. I mean, just look at the Chase Sherman, Jake Collier fight. He was able to get Chase down easily. Chase just kind of turtled there. Jake got the rear naked choke, got the finish. So I am taking Carl Williams. I think he grapples early, gets the submission victory, but I am not putting him on a parlay. But that might be a good prop bet, Carl Williams by submission, depending on the odds. Then we get the veteran affair in the prelims. We got Matt, the immortal Brown, 42 years old with a 25-19 and 19 record, taking on Court, the crusher, McGee, 38 years old with a 22-11 and 11 record. And this is a battle of just some long-time, durable OGs, man. UFC veterans, I'm expecting them to put on a show. This should be a fun one. I expect them to go all out here. Matt, he's an orthodox fighter. He has a brown belt in BJJ. He's an ultimate fighter alum. Two of his last three fights have been fight of the night or performance of the night. He's been showing out. He has the most knockouts in UFC welterweight history with 12. The most finishes in UFC welterweight history with 14. He's tied with Neil Magny for the most bouts in UFC welterweight history with 29. He was the 2012 and 13 all-violence first team the 2017 best knockout of the year. He is on a one fight losing streak and two and three since the beginning of 2019. 15 of his 23 wins are via knockout and 10 of his 19 losses are via submission. Now court has a purple belt in BJJ. He's got a black stripe red belt in Shintoshi karate, a fourth degree black belt in Kajun Kenbu. He's the ultimate fighter 11 champion. He's on a one fight losing streak and he has two and four since the beginning of 2019. A lot of commonalities here. This fight's going to be wild. I mean, it's going to be an interesting ride. I think Matt is going to be aggressive and look to get some big time strikes landed to get the finish. Court is definitely going to make, look to make this fight a little bit dirtier, do some dirty boxing up against the cage, maybe some clinches and grappling with Matt to win this messy. Although Matt is fucking 42 years old, I've liked what I've seen from him in the striking department more. This might even be a retirement fight situation. I'm taking the immortal, but I am not putting him on a parlay. And that sets us up for the main card. Pretty cool. Like, again, great stylistic matchups, quality for a free fight night card. We even had the, um, the Angelina and uh, Mackenzie Dern fight moved to next week, so... Here we have Alex. It's on ABC. You got to show out, you know? Dana knows. Uh, Alex, the great white Murano, 32 years old with a 22-8 and record, taking on Tim, the dirty bird means. 39 years old with a 32-14-1 and record. Honestly, Alex is on a nice climb. Uh, he's been doing really well until the recent loss to Santiago Ponzanibio, which was a buzzer beater of a knockout, by the way. Alex is on his way to victory. And now he gets another wily veteran who has some toughness and some scrappiness to offer. And uh, just a lot of solid ta talent, just like Murano. Alex, he's an orthodox fighter. He trains out of Fortis MMA. He has a second degree black belt in BJJ. A black belt in Taekwondo. He's on a one fight losing streak, but is 4-1 since the beginning of 2021. He is a legacy FC and Fury fighting alum. 
Tim is a legacy FC and King of the Cage alum. He was a former King of the Cage champion. He's on a two-fight losing streak. 19 of his 32 wins are via knockout. Six of his 14 losses are via submission. And he hasn't won since June of 2021. He does have a three-inch reach advantage and a four-and-a-half-inch leg reach advantage. I really think Alex is hitting his stride in the UFC. I think he's going to be too quick on his feet for the Dirty Bird uh, to do damage. And I think he's going to be the faster striker. As long as he doesn't get egotistical, get a little overzealous at points in the fight where he creates openings for Tim, I think this will be a win for the for the great white. I'm taking Alex. We put him on that parlay. We marking that ish down. And we gain that bread. Moving on. We have Ian the future Machado Gary, the 25-year-old with an undefeated 11-0 record, taking on Daniel D-Rod Rodriguez, the 36-year-old fighter with a 17-3 record and the number 15 next to the name. This is the biggest test for Ian at this point in, in his UFC career. It's going to be his first-ranked opponent, the toughest test stylistically, these men's are, are definitely on opposite ends of the spectrum of where they're at in their careers, 36, 25, the experience of D-Rod, the unexperience of the UFC for Ian. But I think stylistically, this is a great matchup. With all the experience and boxing that D-Rod has, it is not going to be an easy bout for Ian. Ian, though, he trains with the best of the best at Killcliffe FC. He's undefeated with an 11-0, 11-fight winning streak and is 4-0 in the UFC. He's a Cage Warriors alum, and his six, of, uh, or six of his 11 wins are via knockout. Daniel's a southpaw fighter. He trains at a syndicate MMA and has a purple belt in BJJ. He's on a one-fight losing streak and is 4-1 since the beginning of 2021. He's a contender series Bellator and King of the Cage alum, and eight of his 17 wins are via knockout. Now, Daniel's going to use his experience in fighting IQ to his advantage. Ian is good everywhere D-Rod is. He's younger. He's faster. I'd say even a little bit smoother. And obviously, Kilclough has a bunch of savages and should have Ian prepared. I think Daniel has his moments, maybe rocks Ian a couple times. But I'm not betting against the future. I'm taking Ian. We putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we gain that bread. Moving on. To the co-main event of the evening. What a fight we got here, man. Anthony the Lionheart Smith. 34 years old with a 36-17 and 17 record. And the number 5 next to his name. Taking on Johnny Walker. Not the alcohol. The 31-year-old fighter with a 20-7 and 7 record. And the number 7 next to his name. Again, great matchups. Great job by the matchmakers here. We get the savvy veteran in Lionheart versus the once very highly touted prospect that's finding his way back. Both men need to have a win if they want to have a chance at a title title shot anytime in the near future. You know, Anthony's 34 with a ton of ring time, uh, fucking 53 professional fights. Johnny Walker's only 31. He's got more of time on his, his advantage. But either way, again, a loss here, it's a, it's a brutal way back. Anthony trains out of Factory X. He has a black belt in BJJ. He's an RFA Cage Fury FC Bellator and Strike Force alum. Two of his last four fights have been performance of the night. 
Not only does he beat burglars at homes, but he puts on a show on the Octagon, and he likes to get that bonus. He's on a one-fight losing streak. He is 3-3 three and three since the beginning of 2020. 20 of his 36 wins are via knockout, 14 via submission. So in a very, very impressive 34 of 36 wins have come via finish. And 10 of his 17 losses are via knockout. So he's either finishing or getting finished. You know what I mean? Trying to get that 50 J's. Well, Johnny, he's got a brown belt in BJJ. He's a contender series and jungle fight alum. He likes finishes as well. 16 of his 20 wins are via knockout. Four of his seven losses are via knockout. To knockout or to be knocked out. And he has a six-inch reach advantage. Now, we know Johnny's a dangerous striker, but so is Lionheart. Both have battled stiff competition, but Lionheart's fought the best of the best for years, man. He's now even on the analyst desk from time to time for ESPN and the UFC. I think uh, Anthony's ability to control the distance and mix in grappling when he's needed is going to do wonders for him, especially in this fight. I think he's going to have to move around some of the big shots and keep keep that footwork and head movement going. And you have to be careful with Johnny on that reach advantage and those big high kicks coming in. But I think Lionheart's going to find a way to victory. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a finish here. I'm taking Anthony. We put him on that parlay. We marking that ish down. And we gain that bread. Then one of the crazier enigmas in all of MMA. We got Jayalton Maldino Almeida, the 31-year-old with an 18-2 record and the number 12 next to his name, taking on Jarzinho Biggie Boy Rosenstrike, the 35-year-old fighter with a 13-4 record and the number 9 next to his name. You want to talk about great matchups? Great fucking there's going to be, fight of the night's going to be hard for this fucking card, man. You want to talk about just cra- crazy striking, crazy ability. You got a show here in the heavyweight division. But again, Jialton, man, one of the bigger enigmas in all of the US, UFC. He's a very talented heavyweight, but not quite a well-tested heavyweight. So we're about to find out. Jialton is an orthodox fighter. He has a black belt in BJJ. He's a Dana White Contender Series alum. His last two fights have been performance of the night. 11 of his 18 wins are via submission, and he has a two and a half inch leg reach advantage. Jarzinho has a kickboxing background. Two of his last four fights have been performance of the night. These guys have been putting on shows. He was the 2019 newcomer and had the 2019 comeback of the year against Alistair Overeem. He's on a one fight winning streak. He is 2-3 and three since the beginning of 2021. 12 of his 13 wins are via knockout, and 2 of his 4 losses are via knockout. So to knockout or to be knocked out. He is also a Risen alum. Clearly, Jarzinho is going to have a kickboxing advantage. But is it going to matter with the big dog Jialton stocking him down, getting some big shots and taking him down? looking to submit him and get the, the, the smothering finish that he has with 11 submissions in his 18 wins. I'm not betting on it. I think Jialton comes in quick. Can uh, Jarzinho weather the storm? That's going to be the question because I believe Jialton will get him down. But can he get back up and weather it to round two? If so, 
the tides will turn. But I am not betting against Almeida and Jarzinho getting out of round one. I will put him on that parlay. Actually, I probably won't. The odds are probably too big, right? Minus 590. There ain't enough money to be made there. We ain't putting no money on it. And it's good because he gets out of that first round. It's going to be a completely different fight in my mind. But what an awesome card on ABC. I'm going to hike in back in Sedona, get the beautiful Red Rock views, some sweet, sweet views in for the weekend. Get some Mother Nature time. And then I could come back and re-watch the fight or watch the fights back. I'll probably know the results because I'll have money on the line. But next week, we get a decent Apex card. Back to the Apex, not as deep as this card. But we do get the fight that was removed. My wifey, Mackenzie Dern, taking on Angela Hill. Tune in. We're at one, episode 131. I'm your host, Shane Gillette. It's the last few weeks of Business at Buckets before the rebrand. Can't wait. Exciting stuff coming up. See you guys next week. Peace.